Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another great episode lined up for us today. Today's guest is an expert in the outcome mindset method. He has a certification for brain-based coaching from Neuroleadership Institute, and he is currently the OKR coach and change management professional at Amway. Please welcome Kyle Spitzley. Hello, Kyle. Hello, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining today. We're going to get started as we always do and uh, hear from you about what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today. So from what I've seen, the greatest challenge is, is having a seat at the table where the decisions are made. And I think the front line is often the least represented at those moments of strategic planning and decision making in an organization. And now the intent is that a leader from a part of the company is representing them, but at a certain scale or size of an organization, there is no one person who can sit at that table and represent the multitude of needs for all of your frontline workers. So I think the challenge is how do we make sure the voice of the frontline worker is not only heard, but is valued, is listened to, as an, 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 is, is incorporated into the strategic decision-making uh, that goes on at a company? So... I'm curious to get your take. You, you talked about the size and scale of that representation. And I'm always fascinated with this conversation because when we talk about frontline workforces, they tend to be large, thousands, potentially tens of thousands of people in the organization. What's the appropriate sample size to get feedback from? Like, what, What's your thought process about how to make sure that there's sufficient representation to tackle the challenge you just talked about? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I'm a huge, um, I, want, I, don't want to, I don't know what the opposite of a fan is, but I am against averages, like doing the pulse survey, get all the feedback from everybody from the 2000 people and then build to the average um, is a terrible fallacy and a terrible approach. Um, I, I, it's hard for me to pick a specific number. I don't think I have an answer for that. Uh, I think it's making sure you have the right uh, thought leaders and advocates from that group who are influential with the rest of the group. They're the people who are, are productive, they're delivering value, um, they're contributing and want to see things get better. Those are the people that we go and we partner with and we try to find yeah. out how do we hear from them um, as kind of a listening post and feeding us information of what the problems and needs are and then using them as uh, kind of a megaphone back into the organization to talk to the rest of that group. Yeah. I wonder if it's, you know, less about the number or like some percentage. And as I think back on the projects, you know, particularly with frontline workers who tend to be geographically distributed, you know, if it's in retail, you've got hundreds or dozens of retail stores mm -hmm. and, or if it's, you know, manufacturing or field service, you might have different remote branches and, and things like that. And what I've noticed is that it, it seems like that's where some of the problems come up when we're doing technology deployments is the nuance from each city each market or each country that the technology is rolling out to. So I wonder if the, the play is to make sure that you just have 
representation from each one of those demographics, you know, in, yeah. in your business, uh, whether it's at least a representation from each country that's affected or each region or each city or whatever the case may be. I wonder if that's the, the approach that would make more sense. Yeah. And I think part of it comes down to, uh, the, the desire to be efficient and to do it all at once and all the same way, because it takes the least amount of work and what you're describing takes an effort. It takes time and energy to, to have representation from all of those different areas and to interact yeah. with and understand the context and the situation they're in. And so it's not something that everybody wants to take on is that amount of work. All right. So I want to come back to this topic, but I want to talk about the justification of cha proper change tools and techniques right? Because what okay. you just talked about is you're absolutely right. So I'm talking in kind of an idealistic fashion to say, well, it'd be great to have one representative from each of these areas, but that may not always be practical from a time and budget. So I want to table that for a minute because I want to let the audience get to know a little bit about who they're hearing from here. So share a little bit about our uh, your background, and then we'll go back together to, to that other topic. Yeah. So I grew up uh, in a small town in Michigan on a farm. I picked rocks out of the dirt as one of my first paid jobs. That was a job, not just something you did for fun. Yeah, it was a job. I, I was excited to get paid the first year. And then the second year when my dad said it's time to pick rocks again, I said, wait a minute, we already did this. And when I realized that they come back, that was when I knew I didn't want to be a farmer. Yeah. Because every year you do the same job. I feel like that's a sidebar conversation that yeah, may be outside sure. the scope yeah. of the podcast, yeah. but I'd like to learn how that happens. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I've worked at lots of different uh, stores. I was at a furniture store. I worked at a newspaper printing press, big box retailer, stocking shelves, worked at a golf course, doing caddy service grounds work, worked at a car dealership, uh, detailing vehicles, and owned my own detailing business for about eight years. So a lot of different things in my history, but the last 15 years, I've been in the corporate world and worked a desk job. So I have not been on the front line the last 15 years. But that last 15 years has been really focused on change management and how do you make change happen in the organization with your customers um, and just all over the place. And that's kind of evolved into uh, what you mentioned is the brain-based coaching uh, certification that I have. It's really involved into almost every relationship and every conversation I have. I'm thinking about what's changing, how is it changing, what does that mean for everyone? And it's just kind of the way I see the world. But I've been able to see um, and work in the IT department. I've worked in an HR department. I've worked with sales and marketing on many projects. Got to work in strategic planning for a year and a half. Worked with some manufacturing projects. Been able to walk the floor, do the Gemba, and kind of understand what's happening on the manufacturing plant team or plant floors. Um, and I've sat at conference tables with chief executives and helped them and facilitated strategic uh, planning and decision making. So I've been blessed to have a breadth of experience. And I think the, the one thing that remains true in all of those areas is that change is hard for people. Uh, it, it, I mean, I always say that I love change if I'm the one who instigates it. But if anybody else is instigating it, it makes it hard. And so that's what I've seen true in all of those areas. Doesn't matter where you are, if you're picking rocks in a field or you're sitting at a conference table with chief executives, change is hard. I, you know, <laughs> I, I just said in an earlier conversation today that I feel like I'm very open-minded to change, but you, you just put an in, in interesting point of clarification in there. Maybe I am most willing to change when I'm the one that had the idea to change or I'm trying to put something in motion. I think I may be a tad stubborn and maybe less likely to adopt that change or be excited about it. Yeah. If it's I somebody people, else's idea. 
people all the time will use the example of like, why do people have a hard time with change? Your people are leasing new new cars every two years. They're getting a new mm -hmm. phone every year. Like there's yeah. things that we desire to change and we go and change them. But yeah. then there's stuff that we didn't want to change and it changes on us. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the word Gimba before. Tell tell those folks in the audience who may not be familiar with that term or where it comes from yeah, when you know so, about Gimba. Uh, Gimba, the little bit that I know is uh, from the Toyota production system. Basically, um, it's a kind of the lean continuous improvement space where Gemba means go see. I believe it's Japanese. I'm not, don't quote yep. me on that, but I believe you're right. Uh, it's go see. And I learned that from a friend of mine who was really big into lean and Six Sigma and continuous improvement. And, and he, he, it struck a chord with me the moment he said, we're sitting in a conference room, defining a process and drawing a map of something that is literally on the other side of this wall, when we could just go walk over there and talk to the people who are doing it. Yeah. Why are we doing this? Because we're going to, we're going to mess it up by not seeing what we're actually working on. Yeah. And I've seen that play, play out over and over again in organizational changes where we don't spend the time to go and see how it actually works. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time being out in the field, seeing how things are working out in the field. And I've always, for me, the, the value to the project was that I was getting to see the environment that the men and women worked in that we were going to be affecting and things like that. And so, and that way, when we did get back to the conference rooms, we could do so with a little bit more context and we can make sure that what we were designing and building was appropriate for them to the extent possible. I, one of the things that I think I've underestimated in the past until I really, until probably we had this podcast and we really started talking these topics through a little bit is the impact that your presence on site has with the people that are on site. And, you know, we talk so much on this show about trust and culture and integrity in the process that change can't be effective if those things are lacking. And so by going to walk the floor or going out to do a ride along in a truck or whatever the circumstance may be, shows the men and women that are going to be affected by this, that you took the time. Yeah. And hopefully we're coming back with some observations that help drive into the design, but, but just really more like we're, even though we may not say a lot, we're communicating a lot by having our presence there. What are your thoughts on that? I think you're absolutely right. Your actions speak louder than your words and to, to be there and to show up and talk to the people and ask them questions about how they're doing it, why they're doing it that way, what would be, you know, opportunities to really bring them along in the change and talk through it with them because they're the ones doing the work. They're the ones that are productive every day, all day. Um, and that's, that's where I think you really build that trust. Like you said, it's important to spend the time to do that. Um, and that the, the results are really what matter. Like when you go to make that change happen, uh, if, if you're true to what you were looking at, seeing, perceiving, and hearing from them, it just makes it so much easier for that change to take place. But if you come out and kind of do the, you know, walk around the floor just to make it feel like you're, you're including those people and yeah. doing the, the Gemba, but then you come out with something that totally misses, uh, and misunderstands what is actually the problem they're dealing with. They're going to, they're going to be able to sniff that out so quickly and it yeah. just causes you more pain in the long run. Well, that, that speaks to the integrity component, right? Yeah. There, yeah. There's got to be integrity there. You have to be doing these processes for the right reasons, not to just put on a show, right? Exactly. Um, so th this is a good segue though, into to going back to what we talked about before, which is the 
being an idealist, you can say, well, the perfect way to handle this would be to go out and survey, you know, all 3000 people that are going to be affected by this. Okay. That's usually not practical. Um, Surveying one person is probably not going to give you, you know, sufficient uh, insight. So that, you know, in a, in a population of 3000 people that might be affected by this, that the right answer is somewhere between one and 3000, right. (laughs) That you should engage in that, but you raise a really good point, which is doing it the right way maybe what we aspire to, but there are budget and time constraints to doing that. So how do we think through that? Like, how do we make the case to other powers that be that may be saying, oh, you, you've already talked to Jimmy, isn't that enough? Yeah. Like, how do we make the case for making a bigger investment in that outreach, mm-hmm. but not doing it to the point where uh, we can't gain economies of scale? Yeah, and I think in those, you know, in those cases where you, you have to make a case to be able to do it, uh, it comes down to uh, what I would call a confidence measure. And so I would look at this as a, a rubric of my confidence level that this change is going to stick. We use this for product market fit and some other things, but really it's a scale of zero to five, which is zero means I have a hunch based on no data and no anecdotal evidence that this is going to work. One is like, I heard it from another person that this might work. Um, And then two is we're actually seeing some data that's telling us from multiple people that this is this is good. So that's more confidence that it's going to work. And that goes all the way up to, you know, level five, where it's like, there's market research, we've done surveys and tons of analysis on the data to figure out that yes, if we change this thing, it will alter the behavior and change the outcomes we want. That is is kind of a scoring mechanism that we use uh, that kind of takes the subjectivity out of it. And so we can use that to say, in this case, we're operating right now on a level one confidence that this is going to work because we haven't done it, because we haven't gone out and done X, Y, and Z to gather the right inputs from the right people in the right demographics. And so you can basically say to a leadership team or a you know, steering committee, you say, Here's where we are. The confidence score is low. We want to increase this confidence. Like, does everybody here want to be certain that this is going to work? It's going to take more effort for us to get that confidence level. And it really comes down to what your team and your leadership is comfortable stomaching as in terms of a confidence the, the risk. Level. Yeah, the risk level is, right? that they're because that's what this is boiling down to. It's exactly right? what it is. Yeah. So if we don't do this, there's a mm-hmm. risk this doesn't work, and we just spend all this time for nothing and cause more churn and problems than we already had. So. Um, that's really what it comes down to. They have to make the call. Now, for me, in my case, a lot of I have more freedom in my role, and I think it's just because I've been doing it for a long time. But um, if I need to go out and do something different, I'm given the space to do that. Like I don't have to ask permission. I can go do it and find people to help me and basically duct tape together a, a team or a squad and say, like, let's go gather this information and do the do the proofing ourselves, and then decide what to do from there. But not everybody's in that situation. Yeah. So it's really interesting when you think about the difference between, you know, a zero or one versus a five, and then, you know, kind of laying that up against the committee or, you know, the decision makers to then say like, you know, what is, go back to what you say, like, what can you stomach here (laughs) from, from a risk standpoint? And, and what are some of the things that could go wrong if we're off on this, right? If our low level of confidence um, causes us to be off here, are the areas that we think we could be off and here's some of the potential impact, right? Yep. One, one of the things that I think is, and this affects all of us as humans, I'm probably just a little bit more sensitive to the needs of the men and women on the front lines, but like if they've experienced a bad project deployment in the past, 
they're going to be super, super sensitive to some of the things, you know, coming down. And I feel like those are areas where it might warrant working with a higher level of confidence that we understand the needs versus taking risk. Because if we, if we blow it up again, (laughs) we're never going to get these folks on our, you know, on our side. Yeah. And I've worked with, uh, tenured employees that have been with the company for a long time and, and you try to bring them this benefits and this business case. And you say, here's why it's good for you and what's in it for them. And their response is like, yeah, I'm just going to lay low. This will blow over. Like this is, this is a normal recurring pattern and it'll yeah. go away. Every time we get a new VP, they come out with some new yeah. technology yeah. that they want to use. Yeah. And you hear this over and over again, and they're yeah. actually right. In many they cases, are. that stuff blows over because no one took the time to do a good job of understanding the context and the problem. And I look at this, like when we're trying to build a digital product, like an app for, for, um, a customer, if you don't understand your customer's needs, desires, and pains or problems, you're not going to hit the mark. Like you can't just make it up and and think it's going to work. Like you have to understand that. And we don't, we don't often do a good job of that internally, um, at companies. And so I think that's, you know, one of the, the struggles is, is we have to treat our internal changes similar to how we would treat our external changes with our customers. Yeah. So tell me, what do you think are some of the, the different practices or approaches that we should take when, when considering change management, specifically around digital transformation initiatives? What are some of the things that you think we should be considering and doing differently when we're dealing with frontline workers versus those you know, that primarily work at a desk? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think in in my experience, and I can't speak for everybody, especially on the front line, in my experience, but what I've seen internally that works for change is you either have um, the, the groundswell, like people want and desire a change, or you have a top-down, we're going to make this this happen, and you, and you force that to happen. In a lot of cases, the, the regular person in the office doesn't really have a, a choice in some of these changes. Um, but when we, when we look at how we do this with customers on the outside, customers have a choice to buy from us or work with us. And the, the, the most obvious way they express that choice is by giving us money, right? Mm-hmm. It's the exchange of value. And I feel like that is when we treat that with such care and we spend so much time to understand them and cater to what their needs are, instead of trying to force them to bend over backwards to use our product, we bend our product to serve them. And that's where the value exchange happens. We just don't do that internally with our uh, our desk workers or our deskless workers. Like in either case, we're not good at that. And I've, you know, the last couple of years as, as the pandemic has occurred, I feel like my uh, mentality has shifted to, I need to be looking and treating the internal teams. I need to be looking and treating the the deskless and the desk workers as if they are a true customer um, exchanging value. Because if I want to get the most productivity and the most benefit to the organization from that employment, from that person doing that job, and minimize the churn and the turnover, all the same terminology we use with customers, we want to do that with our employees. And I, I just, we just haven't adopted a mindset. Um, and I say that we, in terms of like, as a, as a body of change management um, professionals, 
we are still using some of the same methods we have in the past, uh, which is kind of, you know, make people aware, get them excited about the thing, and then teach them some of the skills they might need, and then reinforce the changes. Um, and I think that it's, uh, for me, it's almost been a shift to, I need to treat them more like a customer of a product than a stakeholder of a project. So what's different about that? So let's, let's talk that through. Um, cause I've actually thought about it a little bit the other way. I've, I've commented on this a few times. I, I read something that where somebody was talking about, where it seems like everybody just adopts Apple products, yeah. um, you know, naturally. without yeah. hesitation or naturally. And, but this person was making the point that, you know, every release of an Apple product comes with a heavy do- dose of probably a billion dollars of marketing spend trying to help us understand what's coming in the new iPhone, what are the new capabilities, how they work, right? Showing us examples in TV commercials and on YouTube and everywhere else, right? We're getting plastered with that messaging. So the idea that we just pick up a new device and we just amazingly start using all the new capabilities, it it isn't actually true that that happened without change management. It happened with a lot of marketing and promotion and explanation to tell me that the new phone was going to have a better camera than the last one and, and all that other stuff. Yeah. How can we be doing a better job of, of treating those folks internally with that same level of communication? I know we don't have a billion dollar communication Start spending budget. the same level of money. Like. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> all. That, oh, that, yeah. It's that simple. Throw money at it. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I think, you know, to your point, they don't just build it into the marketing and get the hype around this new exciting thing. They build it into the actual operating system so that it takes me through the steps of how to do it the new way. Like yeah. it's point of need learning, which is really important. Um, I think we're still stuck in this in a lot of ways that we work uh, at Amway is we still do the, like, we need to make a change. Here's all the skills you're going to need. We're going to give you a one week class or a two week class, and then you'll be good to go. And that just doesn't work. Like that is not, it is not how people learn. And so I can point and click at buttons all day, but when I get stuck, I need at that moment something to tell me what am I supposed to do next? And that's the point of need learning. There are some tools out there that do that. Um, I'm not sure how effective they are. I haven't tried any of them, but I think that to me is the the key difference is that it isn't a one and done. Like we basically launched the thing, we trained the people and now we abandon it. Um, I think it's gotta be uh, an ongoing support um, and that really is going to come down to more money, more time where you're walking alongside the people. And yes. so it's, it's, if you really want the change to stick, you got to put the work in. It's not going to, ch- it's not going to just happen by itself. Yeah. When you, when you started describing your background, you described several of the roles that you had, um, that led up to you taking more of a knowledge worker career path. Yeah. How did those experiences or how do they? affect you as a professional, the decisions that you make and the way that you think about supporting change in the organization? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I almost feel like there are two totally different books, you know, in a set where one is so different than the other. Um, In the first set, there's lots of manual labor, frontline type of work. um, And then in the second set, it's corporate organizational all at a desk. Um, and now the third set is this kind of remote hybrid work environment where there is no office and, uh, I have a lot more flexibility and freedom than I used to. So I think if I was to connect those things, what I've learned over the, the last decade of being in the corporate office is 
to have more empathy for the people who are working on the front line, because that, that to me was the thing that was lacking when I was working in, in a role that, uh, where I had to deal with, um, mad people. Like if you're at the airport and you're the person at the counter, we were talking about this earlier, you yeah. catch all the flack for the, the stuff that goes wrong and it has nothing to do with your role. Um, so for me that, I think that first chapter for me, that first book really gave me an appreciation for the work that goes into it, the care that goes into it. And, and that those people are often not given the respect and the care that they deserve for the, yeah. the jobs that they do, because we depend on them. Like we literally depend on them. And I think in the, uh, like with the pandemic hitting, we talked a lot about frontline workers. You know, we, I think it was, it's a lot about doctors and nurses, et cetera, um, mm. in the beginning, but uh, that has crystallized for me. And I think a lot of people that there are people who had to go to work when I got to stay at home and be in my bubble and, and be safe. And, but everybody else had to go to work. They had to deliver the mail. They had to package the boxes. Someone had to run the cash register. There were people going to work um, and that has just really solidified for me that I don't think they're paid enough. I don't think they're given enough respect. I don't think they're, they're listened to enough. Um, it's really given me a deeper sense of empathy for that, that line of work. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I do really like thinking about the pandemic and, and how it's raised so much awareness for the role that the men and women on the front lines play. And it's, it's why I'm always joking around about this concept of us, you know, workers like you and I having Zoom fatigue, yeah. uh, you know, from our living rooms or wherever we may be working, right? It's like, yeah, all right. It's it's a bit of a pain to sit through 12 conference calls in a day, but, you know, compared to what the other 75% of the global workforce is doing, it's like, it's it's really not been that bad. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty <laughs> you know? cushy chair I sit in. All, yeah. all things considered, right? Yep. So what, what are some... Yeah, I like to learn and I, I know our audience likes to learn. And unfortunately, sometimes the best way for us to learn is is through maybe things that we would do differently. Are there any things that you've tried as an OCM professional that maybe didn't work the way that you expected or you got caught off guard on something? Oh, yeah, many times. <laughs> um, the, the two that stand out are, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, trying to use averages to design yeah. the right solution. Yeah. And the other one is going after resistance head on. And, and I always thought, you know, cause I started early on in my career. So I'll start with the resistance one first, cause it's, it's simple and short. The, um, the folks that I started learning change management from first was Deloitte consultancy. So I was working with them mm -hmm. on a project and, and they basically had the position of like, you identify the resistors that have the most authority and influence, right? And the power over this change. And you go figure out how to convince them that this is a good thing. And I think that the fallacy about change management, the, the misconception is that it's just getting people to believe that what you're doing is the right thing. Uh, convince them to do what they don't want to do, basically. Yeah, um, and That's not true. And so I think for me, the the lesson was, um, I would go find out who the biggest advocates, biggest resistors are, and then try and go talk to the resistors and say, what's your problem with this change? Why is this not working? What do you have against it? And try to draw them into the conversation. And they had the same reasons you mentioned earlier, like, oh, this will just blow over. Every new VP wants to use new technology. And, um, and instead of spending time, the, the lesson is not to spend the time convincing that person. 
because I don't know who it was that broke this down, but they showed me a, a basically a bar chart and it said, you know, there's 2% of people who just will not make this change happen no matter how hard you push. There's 18% of people who may be the laggards, right? This is kind of your, your bell curve of adoption. And they're the laggards that'll come along later. And then there's the, the middle percent, which is like 40% of people. And then there's the 18% ahead. And uh, so there's like these big groups, but there's 2% at the top that are firm believers and want to do it. 2% at the bottom that are firmly against it and won't ever do it. And the, the point this guy was making was like, if you just spend the time with the people at the top, the people who want the change, you got 2%, then you've got the early adopters, you know, another 18%. And then you've got like a, 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 a chunk of people that are willing to come along because they're connected to the people in the early adopters group. It's like if, you the get, if, if you get the advocates and the neutral people, you've got 60 to 70% of your organization already moving with you. So there is no resistor who's going to stand up against that momentum and inertia. And for me, it was like a light bulb, like, oh my gosh, why am I spending time trying to convince somebody who hates this idea that it's the right idea when I could just go to the people who want to make it happen, get a large majority of the organization moving in the right direction, and then let inertia do the rest of the work. So for yeah. me, that was a big aha moment of like, I'm spending my time in the wrong place, um, fighting the resistance. Yeah. I wonder of the people that are on the, the lower end of willingness, I wonder how much of that is that they know enough to know that they won't like it, or it's that they don't know enough. And so their natural bias is to reject the idea for fear or whatever other emotions might be driving that. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I found it to be very rewarding when we've had circumstances, we've been rolling out new technology and the you know some of the early naysayers you go out on site later a couple of weeks a couple of months later and they're the ones that you can't get the device out of their hands right something's yeah. happened to convert them yeah. from being a naysayer into like oh my god I, I can't do my job without this thing you know yes yeah and that's that's rewarding if you're on the project teams that are helping to deploy this technology but it's um you know i think there are probably a whole bunch of reasons that prevent that person from just being open-minded and optimistic out of the gate yeah, yeah, that, that uh, I'm reminded of a story about how we apply averages to our educational system. So there's a really good TED talk by I believe it's Todd Rose um, about averages, and he goes into the it's really about the public education system and how it treats everyone the same way, which mm -hmm. is which is a bad approach. And he uses that same example of there's a kid in a the class they're testing this new technology to help kind of meet kids where they're at. And he said, this kid in the class who was the worst off, like he had a, a mind for science, but he just couldn't learn and do things the way everybody else was doing it in the system. And so they, they gave him this new device. And the teacher actually started by saying, like, I'm not, I'm not a fan of new technology. I don't like change. I hate technology. But if it will help one kid in my class, Billy, whatever his name was, then I want to see it happen. And so she was willing to test it and experiment with it. Well, like six months later, after the run in this, this proof of concept, they come back. Billy's actually the smartest kid in the class. Like other kids are around him asking him questions and he's just, he's excelled because the technology enabled him to do it. And the teacher was like, I'm all for it. Like she saw the results. She said, I'm willing to do it. I don't, I hate technology, but I want to see it help the kids. So yeah. It's just amazing how you can flip real quick from being against something to for something when you see the for results. sure. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I think some people just have a natural aversion 
they, they don't get excited about learning new tech. I, I happen to be on the other side of that, right? I, I really get excited about new gadgets. I change out gadgets in my life just because there's something yeah. new and different. And I don't even know what I'm getting into sometimes, but I enjoy that endeavor. As it relates to people in their job, they don't always look forward to that, right? Like they, they may just say, hey, I just spent six months getting to understand finally the technology that we yeah. had before. And now you're telling me we're about to change that. And so it doesn't, doesn't feel as as good yeah. to them. It just it just adds to the level of stress that someone has to deal with, like the tax on somebody's mental capacity and their cognitive ability of that yeah. constant change. Um, it it adds an unnecessary level. So one of the things you mentioned that I want to go back to is kind of what is it that makes a person you know resist an idea? Is it just that they don't know enough, or they think they know so much already? Um, and this is something that I learned from the Neuro Leadership Institute in my brain-based coaching courses, uh, it's a concept called SCARF. SCARF is an acronym uh, and it's a tool that's used to basically analyze um, people's perception of change and how it's going to affect them. So as a coach, this is often used in a one-on-one -on -one scenario where you'd be asking questions to understand if a change occurs for a person, um, you're asking kind of five categories of areas, like what are the triggers? And if, if it's a good trigger, it will open their mind. They'll be more creative. They're more willing to collaborate. So it's kind of like a gain, right? It's a positive. But if it's a negative trigger, it triggers the stress response in the brain, which, you know, cortisol comes about. And when cortisol is in your brain, the stress hormone, your perspective shrinks, your ability to see the big picture shrinks, your desire to collaborate shrinks, your creativity shrinks, all of that stuff kind of shuts off because your brain is being run by the, the, um, the limbic system, your emotional system. And so what they, what they have, and they've done a bunch of research on this is the stat, the SCARF acronym stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. Status is, am I less than or better than based on this change? Like, did this move me up or down the status ladder based mm -hmm. on this change? Um, and then certainty is, does this improve or reduce my ability to predict the future of what's <laughs> about to happen? Autonomy is, am I free to choose what to do, when to do it, how to do it? And then relatedness is really around kind of the herd mentality. Like, do I feel safe? Is there trust in this group? And when, when things are going wrong with relatedness, you feel like you're on the edge of the circle. Like if it's a wildebeest, you know, herd yeah. and the, the lions are on the outside, you don't want to be the guy on the edge because right. the lions are on the edge. And then the last one is fairness. And this is not about whether the change is actually fair. It's about their perception. Does it feel fair to them? Yep. And so. Anyways, that is one way that I've found to be really effective at analyzing specific people's um, struggles with change. And so what basically as a coach, you talk through that with them, like, what is it about this change that's causing problems um, and, and try to show them uh, some of the positive sides of this. And so this is really about pitching benefits to them, but it's in a very individualized manner. And what the research found was that all five of those triggers are happening at the same time in our brain, but each of us has one or two that we highly prioritize. And so if a change affects that one or two for us, it's like a, no, we're not doing that thing. Um, almost an immediate no. And so what I've found for me, like my biggest ones are, um, certainty and autonomy. I like to for know what's going to happen. Yeah, for me, okay. I like to know what's going to happen next. So I like certainty. Right. I also like autonomy, which is the ability to choose how I do things when I do things. Um, and so those are the things that are really important to me. But for you, it might be something totally different. So my communication methods, what I'm saying about the change, 
I can't get to nuance for, you know, every single person of the change, but I need to be having different lenses and trying to communicate the different angles of this change to really hit the, the entire audience and the different perspectives that people will bring about the change. Yeah, that's fascinating. And where did you say the scarf concept comes from? Uh, I will share a PD, a link to a PDF with you okay. if you want, and then you can post that in the show notes because yeah. um, it came from the Neuroleadership Institute. Uh, okay. David Rock is the psychologist that came up with it. It's really fascinating, and and I'm trying to connect, you know, this idea of kind of a one-on-one -on -one assessment versus now trying to implement change at scale. Yep. Where empathy at a one-on-one -on -one level is impossible. You know, going back to yep. what we talked about before, how yeah, do we collect people. enough feedback, right? So that idea of, of being sensitive in the way that you just described with a scarf kind of methodology uh, or framework, but having to now try to do that to scale to organization-wide. I, I don't know, is, it, is that even possible or practical? The only way that I've uh, employed that uh, beyond the individual conversation. So this is where if I've got an influential leader that I need to get on board, these are the kind of things I'll talk through with them individually. But when we're talking about 2000 people or a large audience, uh, then I'm looking at this from what these are the five different angles. Here's the few primary combinations of of triggers. So we think this change is going to create uh, an uncertainty. This change is going to make people feel like they don't have autonomy or it might not right. feel fair to some. So what I try to do is I'll put it into a few buckets of these are the big triggers that are going to be a problem and try to communicate why we're doing it, what it means um, and what some of the potential upsides are. Because what the research shows is that people's immediate trigger, more natural trigger is the stress response, right? They're threatened by the change, right. so they, they immediately go to that. But if you can point them to um, some of the positive effects that they may not be thinking about, because I'm so busy worried about what my status is going to look like as a result of this change, I don't realize that I now have certainty for the next three years about something else. So trying to show them um, the positive sides that they, they don't necessarily see because their perspective is limited by the cortisol immediately engages the prefrontal cortex and allows them to start using the smart part of their brain and brings them out of the emotional state and helps them to see a bigger picture. It doesn't always bring people along. Like you can't guarantee that that's gonna get people along but it helps them start to open up their mind to see the picture differently. And that's what we're trying to do is to get them out of that rut and, and that kind of position of just, no, I'm not going to do this. That's a really fascinating insight. And it just speaks to how much, even though, you know, we talk a lot about digital transformation, but it's really about, you know, humans on the other side of that, right. Yeah, Which is about the brain. People. It's the people. And uh, so it's, we can't ignore all the things that you just talked about and expect to be successful at the same time. And so our job collectively and for all the people that might be listening to this podcast, uh, that is a big part of our job is uh, making sure that, that the human brain and the receiving end of this thing, the people are, uh, are on the same page. That was a great yeah. way to talk it through. Yeah. What um, We're already coming up to the end of our time here. I, I want to make sure to ask you, if you have found any tools or technology, not the systems that you've been a part of actually deploying, but tools that you would use to support communication and change and training that you have found particularly valuable. Mm. 
Yeah, it's a good question. I have not found one um, specific tool around training that I've found to be useful. Um, I've been exposed to a few, but one of the things that I have found to be effective in terms of managing change, and this this could be applied to frontline or you know an office type worker, is is called change analytics. And what what I liked about this, it's, I think it's it's provided by uh, 71 and change, I think is the company. And so I used this for a couple of years. And what I really liked about this is that it, it helps you see the change from a human perspective, which is to almost, if you were to lay out the human network of all the people involved in your change, it helps you see things from that perspective instead of what we like to do, which is draw kind of boxes and sticks and categorize people into groups. Um, but that isn't how people interact. People interact through social networks um, inside and outside of their work. And being able to capture things um, using a tool like that, it helps you understand the risks. It helps you understand the, the overlap of changes. So multiple initiatives hitting the same group of people at the same time. And it gives you all sorts of cool, fancy dashboards to be able to see where are we going to have the most pain because of the, the strategic changes we're making. Um, I found that to be one of the most effective tools. Uh, it was built by change professionals for change professionals um, because they saw a need and there wasn't something to fill that gap. So yeah, if I could point to one tool, that would be the one I'd point to um, as a useful, useful tool for a change professional. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate you you sharing that, and I'm sure a lot of folks in the audience are going to be uh, leaving a note to go look yeah, that I solution should, up. I should get like an affiliate link or something. You should. You <laughs> should I'll post that in the show notes or no something. Way. I'm happy to share share my my what I value. I'm happy to share. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Kyle, man, we have come up to the end of our time, and uh, I really appreciate you carving out some time from uh, you know your busy work life and uh, a family vacation stuck in the middle as well. Yeah. So, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, oh. to share your wisdom with our audience. It's been a pleasure, Justin. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, thanks to the audience for uh, listening to another one of our podcasts. If you've uh, enjoyed today's show, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. A reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for new guests on the show. So if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Of particular interest to us in the coming weeks and months are folks that have learning and development, instructional design background. We want to start probing into um, training and, and other uh, tools and strategies that can be used as part of the change management initiatives. Um, specific to digital transformation on the front lines. So if you know somebody with that background, we'd love to hear about it and uh, have them on the show. Kyle, thanks again for your time today. Yeah, my pleasure. 